Welcome to the new Stand Up Australia podcast, Stand Up Sit Down With. A contrarian conversation rebutting the mainstream narrative. Each week we discuss and deconstruct the most relevant news stories in Australia and around the world that you may have missed during the past week and separate fact from fiction so you can make better decisions about which way you want to go politically and personally. This week, we will be sitting down with Peter Harris and Dr. Christopher Neal to dissect the Victorian elections. Enjoy the show. Uh, hi, this is Peter Harris from Stand Up Australia. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Christopher Neal from Victoria on this week's podcast to talk about what's happened in the past week. Uh, welcome, Christopher. How are you? Good, thanks, Peter. Yep, doing well. How are yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Um, you, I understand you ran um, for the Victorian election in the um, um, the upper house and yeah. uh, the legislative council. How did how did you go? Well, certainly, um, I had a great experience. It's my second election, as you know. The first was this May in the federal election with Ausfed yeah, yeah. Party. This was with Freedom Party of Victoria. Um, a bunch I really enjoy to hang out with, um, but I think I achieved what I what I wanted to, um, which was just strengthening links across Victoria, and um, strengthening communities, linking them up, meeting all sorts of new people. Um, I must admit that I I uh, made the decision to run a little late in the piece. It wasn't something I was um, contemplating doing until about two months out. Uh, and that is um, because I was, and remain, very committed to the AMPS role, um, Australian Medical Professional Society, which we can talk about. Yeah, we'll be talking about that. So I think I, I achieved um, achieved the networking goal, which was my number one. And then beyond that, I achieved a decent, you know, a decent 1%. Um, but we can talk about that and how, how much I think the vote is split um, in the... Uh, the kind of conservative and protest vote space uh, across Victoria um, and how that comes about. Well, let, let's talk about that now. So um, you, your proposition is if the conservative-leaning parties cooperated, that the conservative vote would be much more solid um, overall. Is that, is, that, is that your proposition? Yeah, it's, yeah, that's really just considering my region of northern Victoria, which is um, a lot of farming um, and probably consequent to that um, has a huge shooters, fishers and farmers vote, uh, which even at 70% of counting is almost 20,000. Um, now, there's a whole lot of other parties. Uh, One Nation's done very well. It's their first time, um, first time in a Victorian state election, I understand. Um, and Ricky Lee Tyrrell, a good friend, has been elected. Um, it looks like has been elected uh, in the number four position, four out of five in the upper house uh, region for, for Northern Victoria. But then there's a whole bunch of others. Um, you know, uh, LDP um, unfortunately hasn't returned Tim Quilty. Um, and we've had Angry Victorians, Freedom Party, we've had uh, UAP and others contesting. So that vote, if you tally all of the parties, not including Darren Hinch's Justice Party, by the way, uh, if you tally them all, if they're, if they're right-leaning, 
uh, or protest vote kind of um, leaning, uh, you get you get 64,000 odd at the current count, which would get you over 90,000. In the northern region? In the northern region. And, that and, how, has, many, and how many are enrolled in that region? There's about 500,000. Okay, um, so about 20%, really. Yeah, and for a benchmark, that's almost one-to-one with the Liberal National Coalition, um, which I think currently is 74,000 and would, would be projected to be a little over 100,000 when we get to full counting. So it's it's just fascinating, um, and I think if you if you really analyse it, I mean that there's two things to say. One is that um, the way preference flows in the upper house in Victoria occurs um, is a group voting ticket, and a lot of people have become aware of this uh, this phenomenon uh, in the last month or so. But there's the Herald Sun's run multiple. Uh, multiple stories, other newspapers, um, I think Sky News, and it's really highlighted to a lot of Victorian voters. So I've gone, um, this happens. Let me see if I can. You, I thought it was me, but it's you. No, it's me. <laughs> there you go. So um, I have to come forward and then back, I think. So that's highlighted to a lot of Australian voters, uh, Victorian voters, um, that their preferences can flow in ways which might not be aligned with their values. Yeah. And it's it's now well known, uh, and I, I think I think that voters need to be educated. It's almost like buyer beware. Um, what's gone on with um, different individuals who I don't need to name um, that is that they've played within the rules uh, very much to their advantage and according to their own political kind of philosophies, but in a way that can't be transparent because if people saw that their vote for instance if conservatives saw, saw that their vote for a minor party was actually directly fitting a leaning party um that wouldn't be something they would condone so this whole practice of um the deals done to get minor parties in uh, whilst it may have i think seemed expedient i think it is now past its use by date it's it's been seen uh, quite clearly and i think i hope this will be the last time it happens but essentially that is why that is why um that full the full impact of that massive conservative um conservative protest minor party vote has not translated more is because a good portion of that is actually going to the left uh left-wing um, parties through through these deals um through the deals yeah and, and, and you, know, you blame uh, glenn jury predominantly for that and his wranglings or oh yeah yeah, yeah. Well, there's a few blocks uh, blame in the sense that i i don't think they've um that this has been within the what's well, allowable within the loopholes of the law um so i don't think he's done anything illegal whether it's uh, really in the best interest of the electorate um is the question and my my answer to that is that it lacks integrity uh, and transparency, and being staunchly on the side of you know representative politics, I, w- I don't I don't agree with the practices. Um, that's my take, but it's 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 you know you've got to you've got to be involved to get your head around it all, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing that um, talking about involvement um, that deeply concerns me. 
um, as a development and it's been sort of um, emerging over the last uh, number of years has been the lack of people voting. So if you take Daniel Andrews' seat in Mulgrave, the seat of Mulgrave, there's mm. about 47, 48,000 people enrolled. Yeah. Um, only 70% or just over 70% of the enrolled people voted. Um, of that, um, 7% were informal votes. Mm. Um, so um, of, of the total vote. So Daniel Andrews got elected to be Premier of Victoria off maybe 25 to 30% of the primary vote of the people of Mulgrave. It's not um, an overwhelming mandate uh, for any leader to get elected off 25% of the people in their electorate. Um, so my, my thinking on this is, and, and by the way, Daniel Andrews is, is, I understand, one of the ministers responsible for the Victorian Electoral Commission. Mm. Um, it's a bit like the fox looking after the hen in my mind. But... Um, but hasn't the VEC completely abandoned and let down the people of Victoria um, by allowing this to happen? Isn't their job to get people to the polls so that they can vote rather than just fine people? So 30% of the people in Mulgrave are going to get a fine for not voting, as I, as I read the statistics off the VEC website. Um, That's crazy. So what should, you know, what, and that, that, by the way, seems to be translating in various levels between 65 and 75% across every electorate, across the upper house, across everywhere. So that says that 30 to 35% of people are not even showing up to vote. And then what we hear is that there are dramatic numbers of people that are not even enrolled to vote that are eligible to vote. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm a bit shocked. I've heard you mention it before in an earlier conversation. Um, and, uh, look, it, it correlates. Are you saying they, they didn't lodge a vote or they did a donkey vote or...? or no, well, they didn't. They didn't turn up to vote. Yeah. They didn't show up at all. Oh, that's really interesting. Look, I've I've um, heard from scrutineers in Mulgrave, you know, who've been assisting in Mulgrave, that um, the rate of informal votes was through the roof. I don't know if that's seven percent. Seven percent was the informal. Yeah. So of those yeah. that voted, seven percent voted informally. Yeah, but that well, didn't include the thirty percent of enrolled voters that didn't show up at all. It's, it's beggar's belief. I, I really, is this ever, has this ever happened in another electorate? Um, well, I, I, I can't believe 30% of people. I think South Australia had a very bad turnout as well in their election. But what, to me, what this signals is um, people have given up on uh, the traditional ruling parties, uh, Labor and Liberal, because um, they've lost faith. Um, and so the importance of emerging parties to me has become paramount because people are looking for something else. Um, yeah. So those politico entrepreneurs um, that believe they can create something to lead the country, 
Um, I think there's a real opportunity, but I think that the VEC has completely let down um, the Victorian people by not defining what they have to do to get people to actually vote. It's really interesting, yeah. Look, I, I, I suppose that's part of the brief of the uh, VEC, I, but I don't know if it is in black and white. Um, and it's a sad reflection if that's the case, um, that we're not voting because that's our, our one you know, chance to make this democracy a participatory one. Well, and, and also if you're charged with managing a, the, the voting in a democracy, surely if no one turns up, you haven't done that job properly. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just putting it forward as a, as a, as a thought, but I think people will be horrified to think, is, you know, like Albanese, he's, yeah. a, he's a default prime minister with a default government because they got voted in off, a, um, off, off the lowest primary vote in the history of Australia. So I, I, I actually think, and I'm asking you, do you think that really the, the end is nigh for these major parties and that the people are desperately looking for something else and they're not going to really show up again until something credible raises its head? But my, my thinking is, you know, um, the, Australian, uh, the Australian democracy is in trouble. Yeah. And we've got um, around about the 65% um, Liberal, uh, Liberal National and Labor sort of, comp, uh, you know, combined vote. It's still, it's still a little bit under two-thirds as it was in the South Australian election and roughly what it was in the federal election uh, with Greens um, topping it up. That, that's my analysis. Um, you still... And that that's a, a consistent trend, and it's unprecedented. Um, so it's it's certainly compatible with the idea that these parties are fading and only ruling, or are you know holding power not so much out of true majorities. Um, whilst the rest, you know, whilst the minor parties become more organised and maybe not so minor. Yeah, I think I, I think that's what there's this sort of tipping point, this evolution going. Yeah. And um, it's going to get progressively harder, and therefore you see more and more independents elected, which I yeah. think we saw at this election again. Um, and uh, yeah, so what what's going to be the final makeup? So you've got Labor in the lower house um, with with uh, a minority government or pretty pretty solid majority. I haven't seen the latest numbers. Yeah, let me let me just get them for you now. Um, uh I think it's 15 and 15 from memory, uh, Labor and Liberal in the out of 40 upper house seats. Let me just grab okay. that. Okay, looking at the Legislative Council first, yeah. uh, the House. Yeah. Um, okay. I looked at that the other night and it um, seemed that with the Greens that Labor still probably got a majority because Greens always vote with Labor. Yeah, and, and so you've got Greens with three and legalised cannabis, first election in Australia, huge result, three upper house, it looks like. Wow. Animal Justice won. That's the protest yeah. vote, the, the cannabis party. I think so. Um, Shooters and Fishers won. DLP won and Pauline Hansen's One Nation won. So I'm very much a left-leaning, uh, you'd expect, Um 
new council. Um, so we can go to the other one. And the and the lower house, um, I think. Um, Fifty-one and twenty-six. ALP. Yeah. So. Um, Greens so four. How many independents or others are in there? Four greens. Yep. So that would get you to almost eighty-eight. Um, Any other independents selected? Um, okay, seven in doubt. There's seven seats in doubt, so I'll just grab them. Um, so they look like going to majors. All of the all of the ones that are in doubt. Um, Northcote, it may be, it's a race between ALP and Greens, interestingly. So Greens look set to do incredible, incredibly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I so think what it's... do you say about, what do you think about um, a sort of a Menzies 2.0, Peter? Well, I think that's, that's going to be needed, yeah. I think that, um, you know, people don't want... Um, Either party in their current form, yeah, um, and so um, and even people within the Liberal Party are divided on which way it should go, um, and that will probably continue for some time. Um, and the Labor Party are just doing their traditional thing by, you know, they they're getting elected, um, they're getting elected as a result of the bad performance of the Liberal Party. Or the the coalition, and um, but their 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 primary is still going down, so they're picking up government by default. So I do think that what is necessary is a breakaway in the conservative set, so that the conservative set of people in Australia um, have got an opportunity to at least compete effectively with the left side of politics. You know, look, you know, I hate this whole left and right thing. There, I've got some philosophies that would be deemed to be left and I've got some philosophies that would be deemed to be right. So what am I, a centrist? I don't know what I am, but let me say this. I think all of the, all of the signs are there for people um, to be uh, losing confidence and to be abandoning these traditional parties. And that's not unusual for a change of guard to occur when people... Uh, lose confidence. So I think we've got a lot of uh, interesting times ahead. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I don't think either of the two major parties are really getting the proper messaging. Do, do you think that the, the more of the like-minded parties should just join together? Although that's what happened in the 30s. Um, that might be the end men- result. That might be the net result. Um I, I liken it to there's a new there's a new market opportunity in town, and yeah. that market opportunity is that no one likes two major parties anymore. Yeah, and then what occurs is a whole lot of um, new entrants come into play, and some of them have got um, traction and some of them don't, and some drop off and new ones come in, and it takes a bit of time for a proper. Um, group to emerge and there will be a leader at some point that pulls it all together like Menzies did. Um, so I don't think there's anything unusual that's occurring from a market forces point of view, um, but it's uh, it, it takes time and um, people out in the electorates have to have to have their trust 
built um, uh, to, to see it as a credible option to vote for over time. Um, and that's why Stand Up is going to be doing a lot more work in communities, um, working to wake people up to not just some of the issues that have occurred over the past few years, but a whole range of issues um, that are happening across our communities and society that are damaging to the people. And, uh, and you know, really, government exists to benefit the people. You yeah. Know, the Federation, the Constitution was signed and it was agreed that things would be done for the benefit of the people. And there are a lot of things that are done now today for the benefit of politicians, for the benefit of their parties, for the benefit of corporates, for the benefit of looking good with their global counterparts, for the benefit of globalists with their own agendas. So I think that, um, I think, uh, as I've always said, I think the Australian people are smarter than that. They know something's wrong and it's beginning to really um, play out. And this last federal election showed us that nearly 35% of people said no. Um, to Labor and Liberal, and I think that does nothing but climb that number um, because nothing is happening to rebuild the confidence of the people. That's just my perspective. Yeah, I think I think it's all borne out. It's fairly consistent. I was expecting it to be a more obvious trend this time. Um, you know, I, I'm frankly surprised about the overall result with 51 seats going to Labor, and I say that only based on um, what I saw on the ground, what I saw at poll booths in pre-poll and on the day. Um, notwithstanding, a lot of people who, who do um, really support Daniel Andrews and feel that he kept us safe, et cetera, um, I think there's, there's a whole lot more to it, but we're in an incredible time and there is great opportunity. I think the, the parties are a bit of a necessary evil. Um, we're, we're stuck with them. They're part of the, the political culture, as it were. Um, but they have to be brought to serve the, the constituency to, to be brought back to true representation. And I'm ho I hope that we'll see a kind of a, um, a changing of the guard with people standing up not for reasons of self-interest, but for quite the opposite, um, because we have to do something to bring our country back on track. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So let's um, let's talk about bringing our country back on track. Um, you are a trained cardiologist um, and uh, a medical professional. Um, I can I can vouch for that because you saved my life once. Um, <laughs> Um, and um, I, uh, I'm just wondering, um, you're getting active as president of a thing called AMPS. Can you yeah. tell us about that and what you're up to? Yeah, sure. So um, AMPS is the Australian Medical Professional Society. I don't, I don't know if we've had a conversation on a podcast about it. I know you've been chasing me uh, for one, uh, but it's very exciting. Um, well, well, we'll give you a dedicated podcast on it at some stage, but let's let's hear a little bit about it. Uh, no now. problem. I mean, the story begins in about September um, of last year, where I was um, on a call with uh, others, um, other doctors, and um, and it was a sort of a Zoom meeting, and and um, 
onto that was brought was brought um, someone from AMPS, Jack McGuire, who um, who wanted to talk to us about. Sorry, I should say he was from Red Union, uh, not from AMPS, um, but wanted to talk about the process, the possibility of, uh, of setting up a doctors, an alternative doctors union, uh, alternative to the the main one that Australia's had, which is the AMA. Australian Medical Association, and um, the various re the reasons which are primarily driving that were to do with the mandates, and what um, Red Union had been detecting in the nursing kind of an aged care uh, cohort, and due to some data they collected from uh, their their memberships, that the concept of of um, mandation of the vaccines was not not widely supported uh, in the membership and therefore um he wanted to talk to us and and a few uh, dr red uh got together and we decided to form a medical society and called it australian medical professional society amps which i think i'm glad we had that name because it um it reminds me of an amplifier so you can amp up uh and I, I think we have been, but but just going back to our our early battle was obviously to do with the mandate. So that was October last year in various states, and it was incredibly uh, challenging to to try to assist. Um, but I think we we formed a group for mutual support and uh, and tried to give legal legal strategy and and um, in the, in the context that we we. We're going along the lines of the OHS Act 2004, um, where whereby a um, a risk assessment will be reasonably required and should be sort of uh, developed in consultation with workers regarding any workplace uh, measure. So we thought the reasoning and the uh, legal argument was very sound, um, but it was it was challenged, and I think. We're not the only ones to find that. Um, interestingly, uh, it was Monash versus a uh, Monash Hospital um, versus um, Red Union nurses, the first Victorian battle, and the the hospital was represented by, a, if if memory serves, by the uh, Deputy Attorney General of the State of Victoria, which is interesting and and it is shows me something about how entwined. It was. I would have thought that um, that um, Monash Hospital could have got its own council, but it's all history now. Um, we've moved to the next thing, and um, from about Easter or so, uh, AMPS has been much more involved in advocacy, which had always been one of our intentions. Um, and so uh, since that time, we've produced various open letters, um, collaborating with other groups and uh, we've had several events starting in June where we had a um, a uh, an event in Parliament House in Queensland uh, in which we were supported by Malcolm Roberts and uh, Jared Rennick. That was a great success and I think uh, led to the planning of other events. We had another in, in uh, Brisbane uh, which was under uh, Malcolm Roberts, the COVID Two point, COVID inquiry 2.0, which I think a lot of people have viewed. Um, but 
culminating in the in a September uh, conference which we called Reclaiming Medicine. That was in Melbourne, and it was a huge success. So it was an opportunity for um, people who were uh, had the same sort of questions to come together. We had five excellent Australian speakers and five international ones. So that was huge. Um, through the year, we've, we've uh, put out communications and we've, we've sought to um, make widespread the Altman Report, uh, which is what we, the name we give to the, uh, to the intensive 47-page report by Dr. Philip Altman, who's a pharmacist with um, excellent credentials to comment on on the issues regarding the vaccine and the, and the drug regulation authority type um, uh, issues around this vaccine, how it came to be on the market in Australia and uh, and what the safety signals are. So that's something where that's the kind of thing we've been doing. But the the, the endeavours go on and, and presently we're, we're really about to, well, we're, we've started a, what we... Informally, we call a roadshow. Uh, so we've had events in Victoria, Western Australia, and New South Wales in the last month, and we're continuing that with um, some more in Victoria and South Australia. So it, I guess um, we're we're focusing on on those things, um, more communications and more face to face type uh, meetings. But there's more, and there'll, there'll be a necessity of of getting better at um at getting our message out there. And what what's your ultimate goal? What do you want to achieve? Well, I think uh, our our first priority would be to um, draw attention to medical censorship, which I think is of critical importance. Um, we have we're that's taking place. It's very complex to understand it. Uh, obviously, people are well aware of censorship on social media platforms, which is independent of any Australian-type uh, regulatory authority. But there's there's pressures within the Australian system, and people would be aware of APRA um, and the flow-on effects of the of the joint statement that they made in March of 2021, uh, which really had to do with with um, obstructing communication of doctors uh, freely um, about the vaccine. Um, <clears throat> now, at least in effect, that is what has occurred. Um, some have defied it. Some have certainly been um, censured for, for speaking out, speaking their professional opinions. But we're absolutely determined to, um, to reverse this and we wish to bring attention to it. We believe we are. Um, and that's something we'll we'll talk more about maybe when we when we get onto Twitter in this conversation. There's a there's real movement in this space with Twitter's um, move in late November to get rid of the sort of COVID fact check type um, censorship which was in place. So as as we uh, move to that uh, issue of Twitter um, that's been heavily in the media over the last few weeks. Um, what's the best way people can get onto AMPS? Go to your website? Yeah, so it's um, that's a good way, amps.redunion.org.au. 
amps.com.au. Amps.redunion.com.au. Um, yep. Yep. We've got a channel on Facebook um, and we do have a Twitter channel. And uh, I am about to beef up my Twitter um, Twitter on uh, as as the president of AMP. So I'm um, it's not something I've engaged with much. All of my social media has uh, been on been on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and that's been co uh, concentrated on my political communications, which is a nice little cover for them. Um, but I think what I'm intending to do is make Twitter my main platform for uh, AMPs type advocacy because I can see what's going on there is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, j just just surveying what, what messages people are um, coming out with, um, people are saying what they think for the first time in a long time, I think. Um, and not, not getting and not losing their accounts. Not at all, not losing their accounts, uh, not really encountering much flack. There's a sense of a shift and uh it's really encouraging to see so i intend to get out there and in fact what i'll get what i'll be doing i think is just uh retweeting putting out there the the things that amps has done over the past six months and before you know moving on to generate new content um we're writing a letter presently to the tga uh regarding regarding the childhood covid vaccines and so these are all in the public domain, but I, I think I'll be using that platform to draw attention to those things. And I think it would be great if people could support that and retweet them and make that um, make that channel grow for all it's worth. Well, you're certainly um, a stand-up man because you've been um, you put everything on the line and you've stood up for what you believe in, and um, fantastic that you're the president of this organisation and uh, we just want people to get behind you and support it. I know um, uh, you need resources and funding and volunteers and um, who doesn't, but this is a very important initiative for Australia uh, now and into the future. Um, and um, let's just talk about social media for a minute. Um, so... Facebook um, profits crashed by 50%. Um, our friend Zuckerberg um, told everyone that it was his fault, um, that they'd have to shed thousands and thousands of staff. Um, mm -hmm. Elon Musk took over Twitter and instantly sacked 50% of the staff and probably another 50% of the 50% remaining walked out um, and um, it's uh, removed um, a whole lot of censorship and, um, uh, you know, there's uh, been a number of other things like FTX, the crypto exchange crashing. He was That guy was a big supporter of the left wing um, or the Democratic Party in America. Um, all, all these things... Of so volatile and changing now and um, a lot of people that have had their accounts slashed and burned uh, by these groups have no sympathy for them but are we seeing a shift in the freedom of speech and people voting with their dollar and feet away from these platforms because of how they've behaved? I think we are. Um, 
I, I'm someone who never engaged in social media. Um, I never had the time to even work out how it worked. Um, and it was the sense of the sense of just um, giving up my privacy wasn't something I did lightly. And um, so I, I just didn't even have an Instagram account. Um, but more, I think I tried it for one holiday and then just, yeah, didn't like it. wasn't my cup of tea. But um, I think that extraordinary, extraordinary times have, have probably brought a lot of people um, onto social media because it is the public square of our times. Um, I look at, yeah, I, I, I think uh, Facebook's very difficult to, to, um, to navigate as someone who wants to say um, unsanctioned thoughts, uh, you know, um, heterodox thoughts, as some people say, um, regarding, you know, challenging the, the, the narratives that are out there. Um, and I hope that, you know, that the market will, will play a role too, as you say, you know, I think that's uh, since 2016, is it not, with um, with Facebook's kind of uh, profitability dropping since then. Mm. Mm. Well, we'll have to watch that space and just see what happens. But certainly Elon Musk has got in and shaken it up. A lot of people, um, I guess, on the left side are laughing at him, saying he's destroyed the company. And a lot of people on the right side um, of, you know, that are, really promoting um, uh, less censorship and freedom of speech, uh, celebrating that he's come along. Um, so, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that all evolves. Um, just want to have one final discussion about the economy. Um, Philip uh, Lowe, from the Governor of the Reserve Bank this week, um, finally talked about the truth, which is... Um, the Australian economy is um, uh, experiencing um, high levels of inflation, not because of consumer demand, but because of supply chain issues. Now, I've, I've always said that you're punishing consumers in this relentless chase to reduce inflation, but that's not going to reduce inflation because the problem is supply. Um, demand hasn't uh, changed, supply has changed, and therefore things have become more expensive because manufacturers can do it. I'll give you one example. Um, and um, don't judge me for what I'm about to say, but um, I used to buy tissues from Audi for under a dollar. And now you can't buy a box of tissues for under a dollar fifty. So that's not 6% inflation, that's 50% inflation. And we see that all over the country. Um, can't get cars for two years, you're paying full list price. So if you want to buy a new car, um, like if I wanted to replace my car today, I would, I would pay 40% more for it because there's no negotiating on the price and you got to, and the price has gone higher. So, um, you know, the, the country's in a real mess, but not because consumers are behaving badly. It's because our politicians and financial institutions have behaved badly. And we're now paying for the, the obsessions of the elite. You know, all of these ridiculous decisions they made, um, that is now flowing through to the global economy and into Australia. 
And it's ridiculous that for the wealthiest nation in the world, uh, uh, Australians can't afford to heat and cool their homes. Um, we're probably facing petrol prices um, anywhere from $5 plus because we're not in control of um, our own petroleum supplies um, uh, per litre, that is. So, so um, what's your view on the cost of living and where we're heading here? Um, because um, Philip Lowe suddenly turned around saying, rather than his chief economic analyst saying, it's all of the Australians' fault because they buy luxury brands, that was in the paper the other day, rather than that, Philip Lowe suddenly came out a few days later saying, oh, we've got unprecedented challenges that we haven't seen for three decades, which relate to supply. And I bet you now government's going, why did we let our manufacturing industries die? Yeah, it's so interesting. I, look, I, first of all, on the on the, uh, the comment by the, uh, I don't know who she was, but the, um, the lady, the analyst, was it? Um, yeah. Bank, the chief analyst, economic analyst. Um, yeah, I mean they're directly directly contradictory, and and her comments um, seem to imply you know the recklessness of the Australian consumer, uh, and equally imply a, a solution of austerity, which um, is always pretty nasty. Um, well, and also get job work harder. <laughs> Yeah, true. And I look. I looked at um, the, the what what I think the part of the economic fundamentals in the picture uh, for me has always been the amount of spending during COVID. And I recall very early on, my maybe um, April of 2020, a graph of the uh, G8 nations and their projected commitments uh, to spending, and uh, this can on the of the GFC, so the Global Financial Crisis 2008, and um, and it was at least five. The bar was at least five times um, as high, and we all got to know the term quantitative easing after the GFC and the way the um, various central banks uh, handled the the problem. Um, and I think that's that sort of quantitative easing has been has been operative as well, but that would have to result in in a devaluation of the currency, um, whatever currency we're talking about, with too much in circulation. And I, I think that it's, you know, usually that kind of, that leads to inflation, beginning with asset inflation, then commodity inflation. And I think we're seeing commodity inflation with cost of living, with, um, with food and energy, although there's multiple things I've multiple things driving uh, the the costs of food and energy independent of that particular of the um i think the quantity of easing for instance um all of the you know you look at the the uh, cattle um i was recently talking to a farmer and there's on the horizon a pressure to uh feed cattle with um with seaweed have you heard about this no i haven't yeah so this is in down in Gippsland, and um, and although it's a story in itself, um, the cost of that would be very significant. And the uh, the argument, by the way, would be related to uh, you know carbon dioxide um, issues. Um, <clears throat> and 
the cost would be passed on to the consumer. So there's lots of things which um, which I would think are less than rational, certainly less than evidence-based, that are and will be driving up costs. Um, and, and usually I understand with inflation, you, you it has to culminate in wage inflation, which we're certainly yet to see. People's incomes aren't going up. Um, and I think it is very unprecedented in the sense that um, the we're in a we're in a spot here in the, with the progress of globalization, particularly getting rid of our own manufacturing uh, industry in in Australia, um, and relying on very long supply chains, which have been very taxed and very stressed during the pandemic. So I think the ability to um, to bounce back is is less, and um, so I do think it's in it, it doesn't fit into a standard. It doesn't fit into um, certainly stagflation. Doesn't fit into that idea, that concept. Um, but it's going to it's going to be very difficult. It's going to really hurt the average Aussie. Well, and and in addition to that, you know, you, you your housing affordability comes into all of this as well. Mm. Um, but in addition to that, you've got a million people. Um, coming into the country over the next three years under the Labor government's uh, immigration program. Wow. Um, so that that is going to test resources and supply and everything. Um, so there are so many dimensions that um, are complex and unknown now. Um, but I, I do remember uh, a, a guy by the name of Ray Dalio who is essentially an economic historian, owns a company called uh, Bridgewater Capital, one of the largest um, finance groups in America. He's a multi-billionaire. He said, whoever owns the means of production controls the power makers and decision makers. Um, so the question is, who is controlling the means of production in this country? And you'd have to say that, uh, to a large extent, we've lost the means of production and there's a lot that we have to do to recover that. So um, uh, it's an interesting dynamic, but what we need to do is make more and more Australians aware of what is going on around them and, um, and, and wake them up to the fact that it's not just about um, uh, vaccines, it's not just about various freedoms but it's 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 also a whole lot about our standard of living um our reduced wealth our um our lack of community and connectivity all of these things that are going on in this country and um unless we stand up and fight for those things we're going to lose them forever yeah i i it's hard to see a way out for our economy uh but it's it's an absolute necessity that we work together at a community level, and I'm I'm very pleased that I can see that as I, as I said at the beginning, the 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 major impetus for me to stand as a, a candidate in the region of Northern Victoria, uh, which is the, the the decisive factor, the reason I knew that it would be a win-win if I did it, um, was to network. I got to meet a huge number of groups, and um, and. I think it's just critical to bring groups together. Um, and, and, of course, 
we're well past the stage of just merely talking about these things uh, and sort of ventilating um, these difficult issues. It, it's very much high time to 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 take action. Um, I think we need to be we need it's we can have our food security about backing each other up in community um, and and starting in those two ways and many more to be the change we want to see. Mm. Well, you know, next year we're hoping to do a joint uh, stand-up tour with you mm. across the country and, um, and address a lot of these issues in more detail and connect with um, thousands and thousands of people around the nation. But we're so appreciative of all the work you've been doing now. What, what Twitter, um, is this the right uh, lingo? What, what, what Twitter label do you want to, um, or handle, do you want to uh, tell us? It's, we... uh, it's just at Dr. Chris Neal. At Dr. Chris Neal. Yeah, and if you go on right now, there won't be much to show, but next day um, you will uh, have some stuff. Awesome. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your um, involvement today. We hope to do more podcasts with you. We'll do a full one on AMP soon. And yeah. great to see you. Um, Look, I'll bring some friends and we'll, um, we'll, we'll keep the conversations coming. Yeah, very good. All right. Thank, thanks, Christopher. We appreciate everything you're doing. No, thank you. Bye. Yes, bye.